Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. And we also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you're joining us today for the first time, we are on day 239. Welcome to the podcast. If this is your first podcast listening to us, so glad you joined us. Uh, Just so you know, we like to take questions as much as we can week over week. And so if you've got questions, whether you came into the podcast with questions, maybe you've had questions since you're listening to us uh, so far. I mean, there's a lot to ask us already in the short little intro that we have here. Uh, We (laughs) love to take time to answer those questions every week. Three ways to send us those questions. One is an email. Email address is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line podcast question, or you can direct message us on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, we are the Grove Church in Washington State. The handle is GroveCH. Uh, we get the questions there too, and we'll answer them as much as we can. All right. Well, we are we are stretching out the fall of Jerusalem. <laughs> like I guess I guess Jerusalem's fallen, but we're stretching out this the time. Exile. Yeah. All of this all of this today that we're talking about is basically in the the what the month or two following the fall of Jerusalem. Yep. It's very and we eventually we'll get to uh Ezra and Nehemiah, Esther, all of those books, and we'll get a and then what's what are the prophets that are in there? Zechariah Hey guys, Zechariah Malachi, right? Yeah, those yes. are the three. Yes. So anyway, sorry, listeners, you don't really care about that. But you will in a few weeks. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So we are going to jump back into the book of Lamentations and continue to get a peek into the minds of the Jews who are going into exile. So remember, Lamentations are a series of laments. Uh, and what that means is basically sad poems is a way I guess you could describe it's so it. It's, it's just what it's about. Uh, but they're written by Jeremiah. And they're about the fall of Jerusalem and essentially the state of the people in that moment. So a sad book, but it's important to I, – I said this often, but it's uh, – I think it was Owen Barfield who – he wrote a book called Poetic Diction that I read a little bit – or like a year ago and it was really good. But essentially his idea was – you know, when you read poetry, you can kind of see things through the eyes of the people who are experiencing it. And you can see it th- that way through poetry specifically because you're looking at the metaphors that they're using. Well, why are they using this instead of this? And you kind of slowly are able to, as as much as we possibly can, thousands of years removed, look at these events through the eyes of the people who lived them. So that's why I think Lamentation is very powerful. You're, you're In the history books, you have the fall of Jerusalem described, and in the poetic books that are about it as well, you're being able to kind of almost feel the emotion that was being felt by these people at the time. Uh, so Lamentations chapter 2 is where we're kicking off today. Uh, it describes the destruction of Jerusalem with charged language towards God himself. Uh, multiple times in this chapter, Jeremiah describes God as having become like an enemy to his people. Uh, as the chapter goes on, we even see we see in even more heartbreaking passages uh, describing both the pain of the survivors and their punishment. Uh, and I put just a couple of highlights here. This is Lamentations 2, 10 through 11. It says, the elders, of Zion, the elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out onto the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because the infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. And then verse 14 says, your prophets have seen, uh, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen your oracles that are false and misleading. Uh, so in these passages, we get two ideas that are happening, right? Number one, we just see again, like my eyes are my eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns, my bile is poured onto the ground. Like 
Jeremiah is describing just the intense sadness that he is feeling over watching this. And and, and don't skip past that, right? Essentially, he's talking about how he's just been weeping day and night. He feels sick to his stomach. I've kind of interpreted my bile is put on the ground as he's vomited uh, with just like the the stress of everything, but it also could be something to do with like the liver as well. So I, I don't know. I, it just depends on how you're looking at it, I suppose. Um, and then the, the idea of God being an enemy, and I, and I want to be careful here because I don't think it's trying to say that God is evil. Um, I think what it's saying is that God is legit. He And he said this, that he is the enemy of his people for this moment. Like he talked about how when the Babylonians come, he will be fighting in the midst of them. I forgot what book that was because it's all kind of blending together, but it was either Jeremiah or Ezekiel. It was one of the two. Um, and so while God is not the ultimate enemy of Israel and he still loves them, and we've seen that time and time again, in this particular moment, God is working against Jerusalem, the place and the nation, not necessarily the people, although many of the people are dying as well. And so it, it does make sense that this language is being used a little bit. Uh, and then finally, again, this has been a problem with all of Jeremiah's ministry. I shouldn't say all, because I'm sure there's maybe there was maybe a window where it wasn't, but for most of Jeremiah's ministry, the false prophets were a huge problem. Uh, and essentially what they were is they were people who were just telling the Jews what they wanted to hear. Uh, so he said, like, remember when J- Jeremiah tells Zedekiah, or he, he's telling the Jews, um, here's the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar that you will need to be under. And then the other prophets like, hey, God's going to break this yoke in two years and we're not even going to have to worry about anything. Like, obviously, if you're – and I, I get it. Like, like, if you're an Israelite living at that time – you're like, sweet. I like, I like this guy's prophecy more. Uh, and so Jeremiah is, it's, it's hard to listen to Jeremiah because it's all bad. Yeah, that's true. But that's the situation that they were in and the people weren't willing to accept the word of the Lord. And we're actually going to, we're going to get a little bit of that later on today, but that's, you know, that's a tease for later on. Uh, but we'll keep moving on. Chapter three is the most hopeful of the laments, which it granted is a low bar, but it is. <laughs> uh, it begins in a very similar tone to the previous one, uh, the previous lament, but it's describing the pain of all those who had seen the fall of Jerusalem. But then about halfway through, we get a nice reprieve from the big sad. And this is uh, verses 21 through 33. It's a little bit of a longer passage, but I think it's really good. Uh, and this is, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good that a man for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust that there may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have his compassion. He will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Um, so I love that. Again, it's just a reminder that this isn't over for the people of Israel. God will have mercy on them again, and the, and he and he's told God has told them this. Like even before. The city of Jerusalem falls. Remember, there's a ton of prophecy about the idea that I will gather you all back. This isn't going to be the end, um, but this is something that has to be done for for the sake of the name of the Lord and for the sake of his righteousness that the, the Israelites had just gone too far. Um, and then I also, there's a few messianic, uh, not prophecies here, but kind of just, it, it, it reminds me a little bit of, in this moment, God is telling the people, 
you know, give your cheek to the one who strikes. You will be filled with insults, all these different things. And then we see centuries later, uh, God himself walks through that. And he tells the people again, you know, Jesus fame is what I'm alluding to in the gospels where he says, essentially, uh, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn and offer him your other one as well. And, and then we see not just that God says that, he lives that. Through through the crucifixion as well. Spoilers. So what I know that's what's coming oh, up here in a, come on in a few months. Uh, and then as the lament goes on, Jeremiah encourages the people to return to Yahweh and thanks him for taking up his cause. So essentially, also he thanks God for justifying Jeremiah against the false prophets and all of the people who have been racking on him. Uh, chapter four goes back to describing the state of Jerusalem now. So if you thought maybe the Book of Lamentations is having an upswing, nope, that was just there's the one hope. <clears throat> oh man. My voice. Puberty again? Uh, There was the the one hopeful section, and then it goes right back to being sad. Uh, This one is describing the state that Jerusalem is in, saying that even mother jackals can care for their young or care for the young, but the women of Jerusalem no longer do. Uh, It says that those who died by the sword are better off than those who died of hunger during and and after the siege. And then also the Edom will be judged next, Uh, which this is a theme that we're going to see explored a little bit today, that uh, God's not happy with Edom. Uh, And then chapter five is the final element. It's a cry out to God to restore the people, ending with these powerful verses, and this is how the book of Lamentations ends. Uh, But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew us, renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Which I think is actually a really appropriate way to and Lamentations, because it really, it's a book about the feeling of hopelessness that the people are walking through, but also the knowledge that they can put their hope in the Lord. Um, but it's some, I, I, and I think maybe I'm reading too much into this. I think the emotions for them, it's hard to put their faith in the Lord right now because they've just walked through this incredibly traumatic thing. So I think it's almost reminding themselves that God will restore us one day. Um, but then you also see the emotion at the end where it's just saying like, God, will you do this unless you've utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us, which even though God has said, no, that's not the case. I have not utterly rejected you. It very much makes sense that that is where the minds and the hearts of the people are at right now, that they feel like they've been completely cut off. But as we'll see, uh, eventually we'll get out of the depressing passages that we've been in, uh, and we'll see that God rebounds from, or the people of Israel rebound from that through God. Uh, Next, we're going to go to the shortest book in the Old Testament, and that is the book of Obadiah. And it deals with specifically Yahweh's wrath against Israel's sister nation, Edom. Uh, And then I put, there's an underlying tragedy, and we've brought this up a few times this year with how there's an underlying tragedy with how Edom and Israel should have treated each other uh, and how it actually went down. So remember that Edom are the descendants of Esau. So Jacob and Esau, Jacob who is renamed Israel. So Israel are the descendants of Jacob and then Edom are the descendants of Esau. And the brothers hate each other for most of their lives or at least a good chunk of their lives. But when Jacob returns, they actually, they they make up and they, they love each other. Uh, Esau takes some land, Jacob takes some land and they coexist for at least a, a, a decent period of time. And then obviously you have Jacob and his sons go down to Egypt And when they come back uh, a few centuries later, Edom is no longer the friendly sister nation. And they're they're kind of bitter enemies, which is a huge bummer. Um, And then we read about, and I guess for context, when we're reading Obadiah, when you're reading Obadiah, 
you need to know that Edom is a mountain country. Uh, so they have forts carved into hills. Uh, and this would make them it, – it's it's hard to be exceedingly prosperous when you're a mountain nation like that because you're not going to have a ton of arable land and all those different things. But what it does do is it makes you very hard to conquer. Uh, and so with Edom – and a lot, of, a lot of empires that are rolling through, they're not going to bother with it because it's like, A, it's hard to get to and the land isn't necessarily like the, the, the best land that you're going to want to get. Um, and so when they're watching Jerusalem fall, we, we get – the implication that the Edomites are kind of just rejoicing in it. Like, hey, yeah, they finally those stupid Judas, Judeans are getting what they deserve. Um, and so God, he's not having it. I just put this kind of highlight. You can read Obadiah in like five minutes. So it's, it's not going to be a very long read. Um, but I took this three verse highlight from it or four verse highlight starting in verse 15. It says, for the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy in the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, the house of Esau stubble. They shall uh, they shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivors of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. And uh, yeah, this makes sense because today you can find a lot of people who can trace their heritage all the way back to the ancient kingdom of Israel, and you cannot find very many people who trace their lineage back to the kingdom of Edom. So Edom, true. Edom would be conquered, and there won't be, there will not be a remnant at this point. Um, okay, well, let's get out of the poetry and the prophecy here, and let's let's check in. Let's check in what's, hap- what's happening politically in Israel at this time. Ooh. I know it's a good time. Uh, so, Second Kings twenty-two through twenty-six, we kind of get an overview of what's about to happen, and then in the Book of Jeremiah, we get like a four-chapter, really in the weeds. So, I'm going to read the overview, and then we'll talk about kind of what Jeremiah points out. Uh, so, in Second Kings twenty-five verses twenty-two through twenty-six. It says, and over the people who remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, he appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakam, son of Shaphan, governor. Now, when all the captains and their men heard the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah governor, they came with their men to Gedaliah at Mizpah, namely Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, and of and. Johanan, the son of Korea. Uh, I should have looked. I looked up the main names and I was like, oh, I, I forgot about the dads. But what are you going to do? Uh, and Ser- Seriah, the son of Tanhumeth, the neo the Neophyte, and Jazaniah. The son this of, is when I wish people could see our faces Macalite, because Macalite. I think when we both start talking about people's names, we just kind of laugh at each other because who knows how to pronounce it? I don't know. Only the Holy Spirit. So. And here's the deal. All the dads are gone now. We're talking about the main characters <laughs> now. All right. And Gedaliah swore to the men saying, do not be afraid because of the Chaldean officials. Live in the land and serve the king of Babylon and it shall be well with you. Um, unless you think he's just saying that, remember, that is what God said. God said, hey. You're under Nebuchadnezzar's yoke for a while. This is ordained by me. Uh, I know he's not a great guy. Uh, this is me paraphrasing God here. Yeah. Uh, but this is this is what I have for you. Serve him well, and then even and you'll you'll be able to prosper here. Uh, but going back to the Bible here, it says, but in the seventh month, Ishmael the son of Neth. Ah, I thought the dads were gone. Whatever <laughs> of the royal family came with ten men and struck down Gedaliah and put him to death along with the Jews and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. Then all of the people, both great and small, and the captains of the forces arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. All right. So that's the 30,000 foot level. Let's dig into this a little bit more. So in Jeremiah 41 through 44, 
uh, we get a much more detailed description of the whole assassination of Gedaliah thing. Uh, and so we read that Johanan, remember, he's the one of the Jews that is gathered with Gedaliah at the beginning. He asks permission to kill Ishmael. Uh, so he's like, hey, this guy, not trustworthy. Let me take him out. And Gedaliah tells Johanan that, hey, you are speaking falsely of Ishmael. Don't tell me these things. And, uh, you know, oops. Can't tell me how to live my life. Yep. Oops. <laughs> like, should have listened to that advice. Uh, and then we also find out that Ishmael is, he's kind of a dingus. Uh, so Gedaliah invites him to eat with him. And while hosting him, the men kill him, uh, which, I mean, in any culture, this is really inappropriate. Inappropriate is probably too soft of a word. This is very bad. Um, particularly in an ancient Semitic culture, when someone invites you into their home. It's a big deal. Yeah. And you're their guest and you just rise up and kill them in the midst of that. Uh, not great. That is overtly sinful what Ishmael has done. Uh, not just because he's disobeying the word of the Lord, uh, but even in in this sense where God said, you know, serve Nebuchadnezzar, he's disobeying that. He's also just, <laughs> he's being very uh, shady with this, I guess, is I can't think of the right words today. Uh, and then as if this wasn't enough, the next day pilgrims show up to take refuge in the city. So we, uh, it seems like they're probably there for the Feast of Booths is what, is what I was reading. Uh, but yeah, they're going to Mizpah. They want to take refuge and as they continue on towards Jerusalem. And Ishmael's like, oh yeah, everyone come on in. And then he just kills them all as well. And there's like 80, I think it was 80 people that way. Uh, and then he throws their bodies into the old cistern of Asa, which yeah, I forgot why he had built it, but King Asa, I remember a long time ago. Uh, and then he takes the whole city hostage. So everyone at Mizpah who isn't dead, they're now kind of in a hostage situation with Ishmael. Uh, Johanan takes an army to confront Ishmael, who then flees to Ammon. So he gets away. Uh, after this, Johanan goes to Jeremiah and he asks the Lord what to do now. So, you know, it, it makes sense, right? Because there's been a coup. The governor that Nebuchadnezzar had overthrown has just been assassinated. So it's like, uh, Jeremiah, we need you to ask the Lord, what on earth do we do about this? Because obviously this is a very precarious situation. That Johanan finds himself in. And he says this, whether it be good or bad, we will obey the voice of the Lord, our God, to whom we are sending you, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord, our God. Um, so this is awesome. Like they go in with great attitudes. Uh, Jeremiah returns with an answer and Yahweh tells them that they should stay in Judah. If they sit tight, they have nothing to fear. But if they go to Egypt, they will be killed. Um, so naturally, Johanan listens. Good job. So Jeremiah 43 verses one through seven, it says, when Jeremiah finished speaking to all of the people, all these words of the Lord, their God, with which the Lord, their God had sent him to them, Azariah and Johanan and all of the insolent men, I skipped the father's names there. And all of the insolent men said to Jeremiah, you are telling a lie. The Lord, our God did not send you to say, do not go to Egypt to live there, but Baruch, the son of Neriah has sent you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans that they may kill us or take us into exile in Babylon. So Johanan and all of the commanders of the forces and all the people did not obey the voice of the Lord to remain in the land of Judah. But Johanan and all the commanders of the forces took the remnant of Judah that had returned to live in the land of Judah from all the nations from which they had been driven, which, yeah, we know what a remnant is, Jeremiah. Come on, I don't know why you have to give us the definition there. Uh, the men, the women, the children, the princesses, and every person who Nebuch, who Neb, ooh, Nebuzer, Duran. I don't know that one. The captain of the guard. I, it's funny when I originally put this in, I just read that as Nebuchadnezzar. I forgot it was nope. old. Yep, Nebuzaradan. Nebuzaradan. That's a great one. Thank you. 
the captain of the guard, <laughs> who I, I can pronounce Ashpenaz, but I can't pronounce Woo! this guy, uh, of the guard, had left with Gedaliah, the son of Achaim, the son of Shaphan, also Jeremiah, the prophet, and Baruch, the son of Neriah. And they came to the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord, and they arrived at Tephnis. So... I, I honestly, and here's the thing, we've talked about, like, there's there's parts of the Bible that you kind of just forget about or you skip over. I don't know. It's it's weird because we talk about, like, the whole Bible every year, but every year there's parts where I just forget about it. I was legitimately surprised that Johanan does not does not listen here. I thought, because I, I knew Jeremiah ends up in Egypt, but I thought it was at a later point. Um, so, because when Johanan goes in, it was like, hey, whatever the Lord says, we're willing to submit. I was like, oh, wow, good for him. I think I even literally wrote my, in my notes, hey, good for him. And then like a couple paragraphs later, I was like, oh, he doesn't, okay. Well, like, he scratch doesn't, that. He doesn't listen at all. Yeah. So God tells them, hey, sit tight. Nebuchadnezzar will be fine with you. Don't worry about it. Uh, and they're like, you you liar, Jeremiah. And then they take and they move to Egypt. And here's the deal, listeners. It doesn't go well for them nope. while they're over there. Uh, and then chapter 44 shows Jeremiah pronouncing judgment to the Judean remnant in Egypt for their idolatry. So essentially, hey, you're not listening to the voice of the Lord. Here's what's going to happen to you. Um, I'm not sure if we pick up what actually happens in Aaron's readings or not, but you know, we'll nope. talk about that. We don't? Okay. Well, here's the deal, listeners. It's not going to be great. Uh, Ezekiel- not yet, at least. We'll pick it up later, I think. Later on. All right. Well, then we're going to jump over for the last of my readings today. We're going to go to Ezekiel, uh, which, you know, we haven't been with Ezekiel today. So let's see what's going on there. Uh, In chapter 33, he gets the word, he gets word of the fall of Jerusalem with God. And then remember that Ezekiel for a time is mute. Uh, God gives him back (coughs) his voice. yeah. Yeah. He gives him back his voice this very day, which I imagine with Ezekiel, like when he wakes up and all of a sudden I can talk again, it's like, oh no. What am I going to have to say? And then a few hours later, he gets word that Jerusalem has finally fallen. And then he gets the word from the Lord of what he needs to say. And it's like, ah, I wish I would have just stayed mute. <laughs> yeah, know. right. I don't know if that's what he actually thought. I'm sure it is. Um, but anyway, yeah. So he then proceeds, uh, He sorry, he then prophesies a rebuke to both the remnant and Judah and his fellow exiles for their sin, which is kind of funny because the remnant in Judah wouldn't have heard this, at least for a long time. So, but to the, at least the exiles that he's with, he's... The way, the way it's kind of structured is funny because he he first rebukes the remnant and you can kind of imagine everyone around him being like, yeah, those stupid idiots. And then he's like, and you too. And he's like, oh, okay, I guess we shouldn't sin either. <laughs> uh, chapter 34 is an interesting look into God's view of his people once again, uh, this time using the metaphor of a shepherd and sheep. And I know what you're thinking, listeners, shepherd and sheep. We've never heard this metaphor before. It's brand new. I know. It's an apt metaphor though. There's a reason it's so often used. Uh, and then God says that his sheep were scattered because of the faithful, faithlessness of their shepherds. Uh, this is pretty clearly referring to the kings to me. So essentially yeah. there was a few, and we, we, you know, we, speaking of the king's tier list, at some point when we actually wrap all this up, we'll do. Yeah. Cause Zedekiah is still alive. Yeah. We'll slap Zedekiah in there. Uh, spoilers. Like he's Don't not tell him where. Nope. Not, yeah, nope, nope. He's not going to make it very gotta high wait. up the you gotta list. You got to wait. Uh, and then we'll also do, we'll do a little bit of a, it won't be very long, but we'll do a little bit of an adjustment. We'll, me and Aaron will come in with a few kings that maybe we think need to be moved yeah, it needs me to move to bad king. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, anyway. But Josiah we'll, is the worst. Well, <laughs> Josiah is just, we're going to flip the whole thing on his head. You know who's really, you know who's underrated? Manasseh. That guy. He should He's be. my favorite. Anyway, uh, so we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But yeah, it's God talking about how he appointed shepherds over Israel. Um, obviously not the chief shepherd. They are still under God, but they were supposed to lead the people of Israel in the proper worship of Yahweh. And I would say only three kings really fully, or only three kings really did a great job at it, I guess, is what we'll say. And 
Shemes, Josiah, Hezekiah, and David. There's a few other kings that did a pretty good job at it. And then there's a whole bunch that completely failed. Uh, and so he talks about how I, just, I, don't know, I think Ezekiel is really interesting because it kind of goes back and forth and not in a contradictory way, but it shows both sides of both the individual responsibilities of the Israelites because God is holding them accountable for their own sin. But he's also making it very clear that there was there were leaders in place who were supposed to lead the people well, and they failed. Uh, and then God then promises this, which I think is really beautiful. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the straight, and I will bind, uh, bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between the sheep and the sh- uh, between sheep and sheep, and between rams and male goats. Um, and so this passage is it's, it's beautiful in the one sense where God is promising, hey, you know what? The shepherds I appointed failed. I am going to be your shepherd. Um, and we see like language that is very reminiscent of Christ in the New Testament, specifically talking about he's going to go seek the lost. Uh, he's going to make them lie down, which is a Psalm 23 reference there, right? Um, but he's also talking about how he's going to judge between the sheep and he's going to remove. Uh, and, and a lot of the chapter is about how he's going to remove when he says the strong and, and the uh, and the fat. It's essentially those who don't trust in the Lord. And then the weak sheep who are the ones who are actually trusting in God at this point are the ones that he is going to uh, he's going to stick with uh, the kings. Are now over. God is going to judge his sheep, and those he deems worthy will receive a new covenant of peace, which is what we get at the end of chapter 34 is kind of a layout of that covenant of peace that the people will get to enjoy and obviously get to enjoy. And then obviously, a lot of that is going to point forward to the new heaven and the new earth that we haven't taken full uh, grasp of yet. Uh, and then chapters 35 and 36 are prophecies against the mountains of Edom and Israel. Uh, if you thought we were done, bashing Edom. We're not done yet. Uh, the promise is that Mount Seir, which is the main kind of the main mountain at the center of Edom, will be destroyed with the mountains of Israel eventually being restored. Uh, as the chapter continues, we see God rebuke the people for profaning his name, even going into exile. And what I mean by that is even while they're going into exile, they continue to profane the name of the Lord, um, which makes sense. I mean, it does take it does take like 70 years for the people of Israel to come back and be like, hey, maybe... Uh, Maybe we should just worship God yeah. <laughs> the way that he deserves to be he worshipped. He was right. Uh, yeah, it's very reminiscent for me of the people of Israel uh, before they take hold of Israel when they're in the wilderness and God's like, okay, we're just going to wait for this generation to die out and then we'll go in. It's kind of like the exile of like, hey, we're going to wait for this generation to die out and then you can go back. Because um, it's not an exceedingly long. It's 70 years, which is obviously a lifetime, but um, – in the grand scheme of things, remember they spent 400 years in Egypt, so it's not like they're going to be in exile for a super duper long time. And then the final section gives both God's motivations for acting and what he will do. Uh, and so these are just a few highlights that I have where I'm skipping over kind of a big chunk of it. But in 22 through 23, it says, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And it's funny because I I was actually just talking to someone about this like a few weeks ago, but we get, for some reason, we get uncomfortable with this idea that God would 
care about his reputation, that God would care of and his name is, is what's being said mm-hmm. here. Um, it, it makes complete sense to me. Like, yeah. like God is the ultimate being in the universe. He's the creator of the universe. It, it is, it, we exist because of him. Um, it is right that he would expect us to worship him the way that he deserves to be worshiped. And I, I have, I have no problem with the idea that, um, that God would be motivated by his glory because, because he should be. And yeah. I think we talked about this a little bit, but like humility is the, or pride is the idea of thinking more highly of yourself than you should. Yeah. Um, God can't do that. <laughs> like God, there is nothing higher than God. Like of, of course that is the way you should see it. Um, and so the, we, the fact that God should seek his glory should not be a surprise to us. It's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we as Christians should also seek the glory of God as well. Uh, And then verses 33 through 38, so skipping forward a little bit, it says, thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the garden of Eden and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around, uh, sorry, then the, then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the, rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like the flock of, for their sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during the appointed feast, so shall their cities be filled with flocks of people, and they will know that I am the Lord. Uh, so essentially what God is saying here is, I'm going to bring you back, I'm going to restore you, and people will know that I am God because this is what I'm going to do. So really cool ending, hopeful point there. I shouldn't say ending because Aaron's about to jump in with the rest of what we're going to, but ending for my portions at least. Uh, But before Aaron continues on with Ezekiel, we do want to take a moment to remind you to, you know, hey, leave a five-star review if you haven't had a chance to do that yet, Uh, particularly on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It really just helps the algorithm and get the podcast out there to more people to continue to grow uh, this community of people reading the Bible together. And on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a written review. And if you do, we will read it on the air just because we like to give our listeners a shout out. Uh, So Aaron, what is going on with Ezekiel moving forward? Oh, we're continuing. Uh, And so what happens here is, and we jump into chapter 37, uh, and it's actually an introduction to a new moment, new vision, if you will. Uh, And it's probably one of the most familiar passages out of the book of Ezekiel, if I'm being honest. Yeah, when I was when I was doing my readings, I was I realized I stopped right before this chapter. I was like, oh, I missed it. Yep. So, but you get it. So. Yeah, I know, I get it. So rad. Uh, it's actually probably one of my favorite passages in in in, in all of Scripture, to be honest with you. Um, but uh, it's it's the Valley of the Dry Bones, uh, and so when I say that, many of us who have been a part of church world for a long time were somewhat probably familiar with it. Not just because of the bone, the song "Rattle" that has come out in most in the recent years, uh, but it's about this this vision that Ezekiel has, where he's picked up, brought to a valley. It's all dry bones, um, and then he's asked this in, this incredible question by the, the Spirit of the Lord, saying, "Hey, will these bones live?" Uh, and Ezekiel answers the question probably in the best way possible. Lord God, only you know. Uh, and then he's told to prophesy breath. Uh, he's pro- told to prophesy tendons and skin and muscle and all that stuff, and that they'll come alive. Uh, and so in this moment, and I'm not going to read it because I think it's really an incredible passage to read. 
Um, but I love I love this picture because it's important, you know, for Ezekiel to come in and answer the question. Uh, but then, but then, as Ezekiel's commanded to prophesy, breath, he's commanded to prophesy, come to life. The bones do exactly what they're prophesied to do. Uh, and before Ezekiel stands this vast army. Uh, and then this is what I'll read. This is the explanation of the vision that Ezekiel was given by God in, the, in this valley. Uh, and it says this in chapter 37, verse 11 to 14. It says, then he said to me, this is referring to God, Ezekiel speaking, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Look how they say our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the Lord God says. I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them, my people, and lead you into the land of Israel. You will know that I'm the Lord, my people, when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I'm the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. This is the declaration of the Lord. Um, and I think it's pretty, I mean, it's, it's, if you stop and think about it for a second, this would be a remarkable vision to, to, to even see. Uh, and so I, we even get a glimpse of it in Ezekiel 37. And there's not a ch- time that goes by that I read this passage and I myself am not like caught up in a moment like, man, this would be incredible to see. Um, this would be overwhelming to see uh, come to pass. But even like the, the intent behind the the vision is the prophetic nature of God's people saying, we're dry, we're, our bones are dried up, our hope is perished. And God's saying, I'm going to revive you. I'm going to bring life back into you. You will be before me a vast people again, a vast army. Uh, and I think it's pretty remarkable and a cool a cool little moment that we get with Ezekiel there. Uh, the continuation of Ezekiel chapter 37, we'll focus on an illustration uh, where God is, again, reinforcing, <coughs> excuse me, reinforcing uh bringing back his people, but then he also carries it a little further and says, uh, my two tribes or my two groups of people are going to be as one again. They're no longer going to be a split kingdom. Uh, illustration here, Ezekiel is supposed to grab two six, one riding on them, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. And then the other stick is to be right, belonging to Joseph, the stick of Ephraim and all the house of Israel. And then he's supposed to put them together in his hand vertically. So they look as if they're one stick. Uh, and God is in essence saying, I will bring every pe- all of my people back, every tribe, and they will be one people again. Uh, and it's a recognition that every member of, the, of God's original tribes of his people are going to be included again, even the more northernmost tribes. Um, and so that's the reference you see as far as Judah and all of Israel, but also Joseph and and, and the house of Israel, really important to understand that too. Uh, so it's that reminder and that promise of unity, of people becoming one again, being established in their own land. Uh, chapter 38 and 39 will focus on the, the place of Gog, the kingdom of Gog, and the land of Magog, uh, the prince there. So that's fun. Uh, and so 38, you look, I was, 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 was going to say, say, you're going to look how you're going to say something. He uh, leaned forward, guys. So I you leaned, can see that. I leaned forward. Yeah. It was just like, it's just funny that we will see these guys again, like many things in Ezekiel. We won't see them until Revelation. But, it's true. But Gog and Magog do come back a yep. little bit. It's true. They do. I actually forgot about that. That's a good point. Uh, so chapter 38 here will explain the prophecy of the future f- defeat of Gog itself. Ezekiel foretells of a time coming when Magog will rally his allies and troops uh, and devise a plan to attack a peaceful Israel. Uh, so this is not a happening now in this moment, but it's of a future instance, uh, which again alludes to that revelation piece as well a little bit. Uh, but it's of, of where Israel is at peace. They're living in a, in a fruitful land and Gog is, and Magog is back. You know what? We're going to rally. We're going to attack them. Uh, and God essentially says that he's the one that will be defeated. Um, he's the one that will be, he'll be captured. He's told he'll be captured, turned around from his pursuit. There's going to be hooks placed in his jaws. Uh, and that as the one that's defeated, 
uh, so will his allies, which namely calls out Persia, Cush, and Put. Um, those are the allies that Gog, the kingdom of Gog, will rally around them. Conti- chapter 39 continues the explanation of the defeat and destruction of Gog, where God, in essence, sets himself against Gog and his and for God's people triumphs over uh, the kingdom of Gog, which is just a weird sentence to even write, to be honest with you, between Gog and God and Gog and God. Gog, God, uh, God, God so, beats Gog. <laughs> uh, but that's just that's the the tension going on. God isn't saying, "Hey, I'm greater than you. I'm gonna I'm gonna conquer you. You are going to lose and be captured, all your people, because I am sovereign and supreme." Uh, and then chapter thirty nine wraps up with the promise uh, and detail of Israel's coming restoration, um, which again there's these hopeful moments in Ezekiel that we don't often really see in Jeremiah. There's glimpses, but there's more hopeful moments in Ezekiel. We then jump at this point to chapter thirty two in this week's reading, where Ezekiel is now directed to lament for the Pharaoh of Egypt, um, and we get in this politically or poet poetically not politically poetically structured writing. Uh, we find God showing how He will capture Pharaoh. Uh, who considers himself a lion, uh, who will be captured in a net by his, by God's instrument of Babylon. And so Babylon's going to come conquer Egypt and Pharaoh, uh, and then the uh, focus of the chapter will shift to Egypt at large uh, and the coming destruction by the surrounding nations. So in other words, Pharaoh's going to set himself up thinking he's he's the supreme being, no one's greater than him, and Babylon is coming to, to take care of Egypt uh, as God's instrument. Um, and that conquering happens. Chapter 33, uh, where we read verses 1 through 20 here. Um, we are told where this is the picture that Ezekiel is now told that he is the watchman of his people Israel. And in essence, he just says, God tells Ezekiel this, you're the watchman. If I tell you to say something to warn God, my people and they don't listen and they are punished and die because of their sins, their blood is on their own hands. But if I tell you to warn my people and you don't tell them and they die and suffer consequences because of their sin, their their blood is on your hands. Um, And so it's this, it's this picture of establishing the role that Ezekiel is meant to play, just reinforcing to Ezekiel, you have a purpose, do what I tell you to do. Um, And then we get this incredible passage in chapter uh, 33, verses 11 to 20, uh, which I think are really, which is, is probably one of my... Uh, one of the passages that when I was reading it uh, was really important. I thought it would just take a moment to read. It says this in verse 11, all the way through verse 20, it says, tell them. And this is what Ezekiel is told to prophesy and communicate to God's people. As I live, this is the declaration of the Lord. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent, repent of your evil ways. Why will you die, house of Israel? And I love, I mean, I'm going to stop there. Like I love the motivation God reveals where there's no joy and delight in punishing the wicked. There's no joy and delight in seeing the death of the wicked. His heart and his desire has always been all throughout creation, all throughout human history, all throughout, I guess, biblical history, is that the wicked will have an opportunity to turn and repent and 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 of, of their evil ways and turn to God. Um, and, and so not even just all evil, but also his house of Israel as well. Uh, verse 12 says, now, son of man, say to your people, the righteous of the righteousness or the righteousness of the righteous person will not save him on the day of his transgression. Neither will the wickedness of the wicked person cause him to stumble on the day he turns from his wickedness. The righteous person won't be able to survive by his righteousness on the day he sins. When I tell the righteous person that he will surely live, but he trusts in his righteousness and acts unjustly, then none of his righteousness will be remembered and he will die because of the injustice he has committed. 
So when I tell the wicked person, you will surely die, but he repents of his sin and does what is just and right, he returns collateral. He makes restitution for what he has stolen. He walks in the statues of life without committing injustice. He will certainly live. He will not die. None of his sins he committed, none of the sons he committed will be held against him. He has done what is just and right. He will certainly live. But your people say the Lord's way isn't fair, even though it is their own way that isn't fair. When a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, he will die for it. But if a wicked person turns from his wickedness and does what is right and just, he will live because of it. Yet you say the Lord's way isn't fair. I will judge each according to his ways, house of Israel. And I just... It's such a powerful picture of God's grace and his plan for redemption for all humanity. I mean, even as I'm reading this, my the, my mind wanders to the story of Zacchaeus in the New Testament where he where Jesus calls him out of a tree and says, "Hey, I'm going to I'm going to come and dine with you. I'm going to come to your house," which again, historically, b- biblical history, whenever someone in Jewish culture, whenever someone invites someone to a house or goes to someone else's house, it's a high honor. It's a it's a it's, hospitality was a big deal uh and and still is in Jewish culture. And so this picture is in in the New Testament, we see with Jesus and Zacchaeus, Jesus affirms Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus has this moment of repentance saying, if I've wronged anybody, I will return to them. He was a tax collector. He was, he was one of the chief sin, like of sinners. He had his own category where it was uh, sinners and then tax collectors was lumped into a group. Uh, So all of this to say, like Zacchaeus was forgiven, but the religious people in that time were up in arms and frustrated and annoyed that Jesus would oftentimes sit with sinners. And this passage in the Old Testament alludes to God's heart, alludes to God's intention with humanity. And I just think it paints such a clear picture of the idea of we're not saved because of our righteousness. We know that to a degree, but we still live as if it's our righteousness that gets us into heaven and helps us earn salvation. It's not true. It's not biblical. It's not real. And so I just love that in the Old Testament, we get this glimpse and this picture of God's heart for humanity, God's heart for even the wicked, that they would have an opportunity to return to him. I thought was really, really good. Uh, And a great reminder as you read it this week, uh, we shift to Jeremiah chapter 52, verses 28 to 30. Um, And this is just a, a, I'll read it here in a second, but it gives us, it's kind of, what we're going to see at this point is it's kind of wrapping up uh, and setting us up for exile. So we're we're going to be jumping into uh, Chronicles again. First Chronicles, actually, we haven't been there for a long time. Um, but I'm going to read 52, 28 to 30 first. It says, These are the people Nebuchadnezzar deported in the seventh year, 3,023 Jews. In his 18th year, 832 people from Jerusalem. In Nebuchadnezzar's 23rd year, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guards, deported 745 Jews. Altogether, 4,600 people were deported. Uh, and so we just kind of get this glimpse of, uh, people that have gone into exile, the ones that Nebuchadnezzar has taken uh, as as direct or not as directed, but as he directs the chief uh, captain of his guard, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and so there's this this quick little picture of who's gone into exile. And then, shocker, we get the last psalm of our reading plan. We thought we were done, Evan. We're not done. We have one more psalm to oh read. Oh, my Goodness. And it's Psalm 137. I'm going to read it because it's the last psalm. And I, I double check this before we jump in the New Testament. There are no more psalms. This is it. This is the last psalm. I would be very surprised the if there was a psalm written during the time. Can of the you New imagine? Testament. But there's no more psalms until we get, unless, well, as of our Old Testament readings, just adds up. So it says this Psalm 139 verses one, th- 137 verses one through nine. It says, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There we hung up our lyres on the poplar trees. 
For our captors there asked us for songs, and our tormentors for rejoicing. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's, Lord's song on foreign soil? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem as my greatest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites said the day uh, at Jerusalem. Destroy it. Destroy it down to its foundations. Another reason why Edom was judged, as we just heard from Evan's portion. Verse 8 says, Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who pays you back what you have done to us. And verse 9, happy is he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. It's kind of a morbid thought at the end of the psalm, but the psalm is from the people in exile. So as we were just reading Jeremiah, here's a number of people who have been in exile. This is a lament that has come from uh, the, the exiles as they are sitting by the rivers of Babylon, thinking back over Jerusalem and the city of Zion. Uh, and you hear the the dis- the uh, not the distraught. I guess I'm just going to say it, the distraughtness. You hear the sorrow in their words um, and the grief that they're wrestling through and navigating. Uh, and so that was kind of a shocker when I saw it on the reading plan. I was like, oh shoot, we have one more psalm. So I had to read it. Uh, now after it's a, this, go now ahead. it's officially the end of an era. Yes, <laughs> it's, it's over. Now. We can close that entire book now. Um, then finally, as we're wrapping up this week. We'll shift back into some First Chronicles portions of Scripture, um, and I'm going to go back to Jer- Jeremiah 52, 28 to 30 here for a second. That really kind of is that setup passage for the rest of our reading this week, and even a little bit in the first day of next week, um, but it just gives us uh, a shift into those who have been exiled, the number of people who have been exiled, and then we shift into a whole bunch of genealogies again. Um, which is interesting because I, and I had to do a little bit of digging to figure out why we're we reading this now in this plan. Um, and, and I, I have to, I have to cheat guys. We have to, we have to skip ahead just for one reading. Um, and it's in, we're going to read to the next week, uh, starting in chapter nine, verse one, after we finish chapter eight of first Chronicles. Um, but it just says this, it says all Israel was registered into the genealogies that are written in the book of Kings in Israel. But Judah was exiled to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. Um, and so I, I read that to set up the the next five or six or seven different sections we're going to read um, because in essence, the genealogies are going to lead us up to this point of exile. You're going to see historically, these are genealogies that were written to keep them connected, these individuals connected to their uh, their family lines. Uh, and so each of these portions gives us a different glimpse of these genealogies. And so First Chronicles chapter 4, verse 24 to 43, will bring us back to the line of Simeon and his descendants during the days of King Hezekiah. Uh, and this is when, the, this portion is when they attacked the Hamites, the Minyanites, uh, and then settled in their land, uh, which happened even recently as we were reading through some of the uh, the different books in Jeremiah, different contexts in Jeremiah, chapter in Jeremiah. Uh, chapter five of first Chronicles brings us to Reuben's descendants, um, and also reminds us as kind of like a subtle side note that Reuben's birthright was given to Joseph's son, sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, so it'll give us the lineage of Reuben, uh, descendants of Reuben up to exile, gives us to Gad's descendants and also the half tribe of Manasseh, uh, chapter six, verse three, we kind of do like little quick hits, um, brings up Amram, who is the father of Aaron, Moses and Miriam. And then 649 highlights Aaron as the chief and high priest, and his sons are the ones who do the work in the most holy place. Then we shift back to verse 4 through 15, uh, which draws the line from the uh, the, the, the line of, of, of Aaron all the way to Jehozadak. 
um, who, if you remember, went into exile when the Lord sent Judah and Jerusalem into exile because of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and so we'll see this line, this descent, this lineage line, this genealogy that ends the reading for us in verse 15 for Jehozadak, uh, which again, like I said, he's the one, one of the ones that he was taken away into Babylon for exile. Chapter 7. Uh, we're brought to the descendants of Issachar, the tribe of Issachar, the tribe of Benjamin, like a quick little two-verse hit, maybe a one-verse hit of Naphtali, Manasseh, Ephraim, and Asher. Uh, and then chapter 8, verses 1 through 28, and then we'll finish chapter 8 to, or the next week tomorrow because it's the last day of reading. But the next week, beginning of the next week, we're introduced partially to Benjamin's descendants um, and then wrap up again next week. Uh, and so really it is kind of putting a bow on the journey into exile bringing us up to speed, the individuals who were gone into exile, they're attributed to the tribes, their their genealogies are listed back. Uh, And so that's why I read chapter one. That's why I read chapter or refer back to Jeremiah chapter 52. Um, It just kind of sets us up. And now chronologically, we're seeing people not only in exile, but now retracing back their history and their roots. Um, And because biblically, it helps us then have an idea of who went where uh, during exile and it gives a historical account of their of their descendants. So uh, I, the way that I liken it to is um, Ellis Island in 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 New York, right? Ellis Island. For for, for listeners for who aren't aware, yeah, for listeners who aren't aware, that's where uh, if you're immigrating you, from the East Coast by ship, that's you, where you're stopping. You off. stop there. You check. Like, there's even like signage. And if you've seen the movie Hitch, there's this funny moment of. Anyways, with Will Smith and uh, I can't remember her name now. But anyways, all that to say, it, it's it's a, a moment like it's almost a log. And so they can, we can currently go back to Ellis Island today and see names of the immigrants who immigrated into the United States of America way back when. Um, and so we have some similarities to this where we can kind of understand what's happening as we read through First Chronicles. Um, because it was a very quick shift as I'm reading this week. Oh, I was like, yeah. oh, we're reading in First Chronicles? That's weird. But that's the reason why. Exiles happen. People have have left the city of Jerusalem. We've read the lament as they think about Zion. And now we're revisiting their lineage. Where did they come from? These are individuals. These are tribes who have been impacted, who have descendants, who have gone into exile because of Nebuchadnezzar and God's wrath being poured out. And so that's where we end the week. What a good time. Well, we did, yeah. we did have a question come in. Uh, unfortunately, it came in like 10 minutes before we started recording. So we'll get to it next week. But we Ooh. will talk about what we learned today. Yeah, I just want to take a moment to expound upon kind of what I was talking about a little bit earlier. Um, I think that it is a good thing to remind ourselves that we should earnestly desire God's glory in our lives. And and that one of the filters we should be thinking through is how how can I bring glory to God with the, with the way I do X, you know, what, whatever that may be. And I think that we one of our one of the one of the struggles that we're going to have is our own particular culture and what I mean by that is kind of just like modern American culture is that we're very focused on the individual. That's kind of the the way the nation was built up a little bit was a focus on uh the individual. And, and because of that, we kind of think of we think of the idea of God desiring his own glory as being somehow wrong or being something that we should thumb our noses at. Um, and I think really what we should be talking about is the fact that if we if we actually believe the gospel, if we actually believe that we were dead in sin and that Christ died for our sins, we should want to glorify God. We should want to spend all the time that we can seeing how we can bring God glory. And I think that's a, it's a good thing for us to kind of actually pause and take a moment and think through, 
Um, how is what I'm doing right now bringing glory to God? How is my life as a whole? And kind of trying to take a, like almost step out of it for a moment and like look towards the trajectory of my life. How is that bringing glory um, to God? And, and then really just resting in that idea of this is what the ultimate goal of my life is. And then looking at all the different areas and seeing how that can be done. Yeah, that's really good. I like it. Um, for me, it comes back to Ezekiel 37. Um, this is probably, like I said, one of my favorite passages of scripture, but even like going back into different moments in my teenage years, as I'm wrestling through and, you know, doing the, in the few moments that I like of my life that I prayer journal, like just reflecting on, um, just the fact that God, God is the one who can revive. God is the one who can bring back to life. Um, and I remember recently I was, uh, uh, I watched a simple little video. I don't remember if it was on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. I'll troll videos every now and then just to kill time. Probably way too much time in my life, total confession. But one of the ones that I remember stumbling across was this um, this individual who was talking about their marriage. And they they were in this counseling session and the, the individual was asked, do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that Jesus died? He rose again for your sins, for mine. And, and the response was like, yeah, I believe. And the counselor then pushed back and said, do you really understand? Like, do you really be- believe and know and understand what I'm saying? Like the gospel, Jesus died, rose again, conquered sin and death. And and the response was like, yeah, I get it. it and, and then the counselor said, if you truly believe that, your marriage, which you think is on, uh, is dead. The gospel is the one that brings back life. And, and I remember watching that. I was like, oh my gosh, that's so good. Um, because it's true of any aspect of our life. And as I read Ezekiel 37, even this week, the timing of all of it, if call it what it is coincidental, but I, I really just am reminded of there are, there are places in our lives as followers of Jesus, relationships in our lives as followers of Jesus, marriages, r- reconciliation with the kid. Like there's, there's things in our life that we feel as if they're on the verge of death, if not dead. And Ezekiel 37 reminds us that God is the one who brings back life. God is the one who is the restorer. God is the one who, uh, Ezekiel's statement was, only you, God, know whether or not these bones can live again. And and God's response is like, prophesy to them. And I'm not saying that everyone can walk around, I'm gonna start speaking prophetically, bones come alive. But what I think is important to remember is the same God, the same power that rose Christ from the dead, we're told scripturally, lives inside of us. And the same God who breathed the breath of life into us as created beings is the one who, and the only one that could restore and revive. And so as I think about this week, it caused me to just wonder and it caused me to consider where in my life or what, where do I see things that I question whether or not they can be revived, whether or not they can see life come again. And whether for you as a listener, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your own walk with Jesus, whether it's it's relationships and, and, and family members and whatever the case is, wherever there's like maybe it's passion and vision and hope for life. Like the, the, the Israelites were in despair. Like they said, we are, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. And, and God speaks and, and shows this vision to Ezekiel to answer that question of bones being not just assembled as skeletons, but to see tendons and skin return to the bones. It brings life and life abundant again. And so I think it's important to remember uh, as we read scripture scripture and, and passages like this, like God is the one who does it. It's not me. It's not my prayer. It's not the pastor's prayer. It's literally the God who created the universe that we get to call our Lord and Savior. And I think that's important to remember as followers of Christ. That there are de- there are areas that are seemingly dead or seemingly drying up 
that God alone is the one who can revive. Um, and so it's to hold and, and, and cling to the hope that God is able to do more than we could ever think in that regard too. So that was a really convicting and challenging and encouraging thought for me today. And I hope it does the same for you. There you go. Well, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only podcast or the only resource of the Grove Church. Uh, you can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week.